Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. If I haven't got to meet you, I I get to work with uh, a group called Athletes in Action on campus. And a few years ago, uh, we brought in a, a man who who works for Athletes in Action nationally, and he was an Olympic wrestler. Uh, some of you may remember John Peterson. He uh, he was in the '72 and the '76 Olympics. Uh, it was like smuggling Bibles through the Iron Curtain uh, under the guise of wrestling. And um, he won the silver and then the gold, and his brother, like, flipped. His brother won silver and gold the opposite years. Anyway, uh, so he came, and he was, like, sharing the gospel with our students, and he brought his Olympic medals and passed them around like they're candy or something. It's pretty amazing. Um, but he made a comment that struck me. He said when he went back to watch his gold medal match, um, the announcer, you know, as announcers are, are wont to do, starts making some grand claims about this, this is what his whole life has been working for, and now he is, you know, living out his greatest dreams. And, and when he was sharing that, he said, Actually, the announcer didn't know what he was talking about. Because that wasn't it. He was winning the gold medal at the Olympics. It's a pretty big deal. But he was telling our students, no, that's, that's actually not what my life is for. That's not what I ultimately want to serve. That's a pretty amazing statement, I think. And the prophecy that we have here in the book of Daniel is something that wants to kind of wake us up and ask, could we ever say something that drastic? Could we say, best case scenario, you win the gold medal of whatever your event is in life, and you still say, it's not the kingdom of God. What if you got everything you were fighting for? Would you realize you were fighting for the wrong thing? Daniel wants us to see through the sort of fog of the conquer Israel, the conquering empire that is around him. And that's part of what this crazy language does, is supposed to do at least, is to get us through, see through the fog, see through what everything feels like in the moment, and to take a step back and say, what is really going on? Who is the real king? Those are the sorts of questions I want us to ask as we jump in. Let's pray. God, we do praise you for this day. We praise you that we have been welcomed into heaven itself, and we ask that your spirit would descend, Lord. May you unite us to Christ, open us up to hear your word. Won't you comfort the brokenhearted, Lord, those who feel totally lost and abandoned, and won't you challenge the hard-hearted. Father, speak to us, to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is an amazing uh, chapter. You may not realize it. Uh, 
But it is really, really incredible. And we could geek out for hours about what happens in Daniel 7, how the New Testament is interpreting Daniel 7, and what Jesus is saying about the Son. I mean, we could do that for a while. I won't geek out for that long. But we have to do it a little bit because Daniel 7 is really uh, quite an amazing thing. And he wants us to indeed wake up and see that there is only one kingdom that lasts. So to remind us what's going on in the book of Daniel, Daniel uh, was one of the elite Israelites that was brought to Babylon after Israel fell under Babylon. Uh, we're told in the very first chapter that it was the Lord who did that. Uh, it was not this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, it was ultimately the Lord. And so Daniel has been in and out of favor with the kings that have come and gone. Uh, sometimes he is uh, exalted, and other times he is, for example, cast into the lion's den, like last chapter. Uh, but we have this in the center of the book, and for Hebrew sort of language style, the center is where they put the most important. It's not like us where we would sort of write a poem and the climax is at the end. Here, it's very often in, in Scripture that the climax is at the middle, and so Daniel 7 is the climax of the book. It's really the hinge that takes us from 1 through 6, which is a lot of history and prose, and this happened, and then another king came, and then Daniel did this. And then after 7, you get more of these dreams and visions and apocalyptic imagery. And so Daniel 7 is where this shift happens. And what we see, and you heard read, and I intentionally had us read these crazy uh, images because that's what this type of, of language is supposed to do. It's supposed to shock us. So you have it in Daniel. You have it in lots of other uh, Old Testament prophets. You have it in Ezekiel and Zechariah and many others. Of course, you have it in Revelation in the New Testament. The point is to shock us. So if you are confused if you are wondering, why did I come to this crazy church that was going to read these crazy verses? That's the point. That's good. You should be thinking that. Uh, I just want to encourage you to press on through the craziness and try to learn what is, what is God trying to say. So he wants us to wake up. Sometimes he is intentionally ambivalent because he wants to show us the extremes of what is true. And so some of these extreme uh, beasts are meant to show us the true face of the kings. What is really going on? Who are the empires really? So he tells us, he gives us these four beasts. And the beasts are intentionally hybrid types of animals first one is a lion with eagle's wings, and you have a bear, but he's like lopsided, and you have, what was it, a leopard, also, was it with wings? I forget already. These hybrid animals to a Jew would have seen unclean, right? So they weren't created according to the kind as in Genesis. They would have been unclean with some of the, the Leviticus laws. So they're meant to seem monstrous. The fourth beast 
We're not even told what type of animal it is. Daniel is just so terrified. He doesn't, can't even name it. We're just told it's terrifying and strong and it has iron in his teeth and all of these things. So it's meant to show us there's something monstrous, unclean, unholy about the kings, about the, the empires that have overtaken Israel. And very briefly, you may or may not be aware of a lot of people that spent a lot of time trying to figure out which king is this beast, which king is that beast, is it this, that, this, that. I think, to cut to the heart of it, probably the fourth beast is Rome, but it's not that important and it's not the, the ultimate import of the passage. There's some reason to think, yeah, the first beast is Babylon, the second beast is the Mede-Persian Empire, because the Persians were a lot more powerful than the Medes. And then the Greeks, with Alexander the Great, split into four kings after, after Alexander, so the leopard has four heads, and then Rome is uniquely universal. So there's something to that, I think, but I don't actually think that's the main point. So don't get lost in that. We can talk about it later if you want. Because I think the main point is actually to see that their true nature is not to last as they appear to think they will. We've seen that a lot in the book of Daniel. They are not as powerful as they seem. In fact, if the fourth beast is Rome, we're told that he's destroyed when the Son of Man receives his power, right? Even though the third, the, even though the three beasts keep some of their dominion after the fourth beast is destroyed. So that seems kind of weird if it's specific about Rome and Greece and all that stuff. It seems like it's more about the spirit of empire, the spirit of the kings, the spirit of worldly government. That if we were to see them with better eyes, we would see them for this vacuous, empty, you are going to be destroyed at the word of God's judgment. And so he has this picture of these beasts, this picture of these incredibly powerful in their day empires that get destroyed with this vision of the ancient of days. Ancient of days is the only time in all of scripture where we have that phrase. The one who lasts, the one who is everlasting, the one who is wise. And he's portrayed in, again, intentional language. So you want to know how to read some of this language uh, uh, with all the fire, with the, the pure as wool type language, his clothing, his throne. His throne moves because he sees everything. His, he's consumed, there's all this flames and fire because he is purifying and he is righteous and he is holy. Nothing can come close and he's portrayed with 10,000 upon 10,000s of creatures serving him. And I think 10,000 was actually the largest number they, could, they kind of knew about then. They could kind of conceive of. And so it's beyond what we can count. Is coming before the Ancient of Days. Not coming before these kings. Not coming before Nebuchadnezzar, or Belshazzar, or Darius, or Cyrus, or anybody coming before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is on his throne, and he sets up a judgment scene. 
right? That's what we have in the vision. The court sat in judgment in verse 10, and the books were opened. We're going to take account, right? Account is about to be had. And the beasts are judged. He's listening to the fourth beast, this mouth who is speaking great things. Daniel starts listening to him, but then the beast was killed. So he seems to be kind of in his arrogance. He's portrayed as a mouth. We don't know what kind of animal. Remember, he's this monstrous beast, and he's a mouth speaking great things. So he's kind of mocked in his arrogance, because when he's getting Daniel's attention, he's killed. And the rest of the beast remained alive, but their dominion was taken away. So the Ancient of Days has sat in judgment, and then we have the vision of the one like a son of man. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time in this vision and trying to unpack what's really going on. The one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So he's portrayed as a divine figure. The one who rides on the clouds is God. No one else is riding on the clouds. And so he's divine-like, if anything, in the Old Testament. And the one like the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days has destroyed these false kingdoms and is now giving the everlasting kingdom to the one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man, we're told, we didn't read it in verse 18, but we're told that verse 18 tells us the saints inherit this kingdom that is everlasting. Even though the fourth beast is, is persecuting them and, and fighting a great war against the saints, they are going to inherit this Son of Man everlasting kingdom. So, the million dollar question is, when did the Son of Man get this authority? Is this all pure future? Daniel's writing in 6th century B.C.? And is he just saying, hold on, a few millennium, the past, is it happened already? And where is this happening? Is this heaven? Is this earth? Is it both? Where is the Son of Man going? Where is he coming from? All these things. Well, thanks be to God, we don't have to try to interpret Daniel on its own. The New Testament is very clear and what's going on. So if we are first to see this vision and say, wake up, there is only one kingdom that is everlasting, the New Testament and Jesus himself, as well as the letters, say in innumerable, I mean, I guess you could count them, but in many, many times, they say, Jesus is the Son of Man, rejoice, he has received the kingdom. So if it's wake up first, it's now rejoice, the kingdom has come. He is the Son of Man. How do we know that? Son of Man is Jesus' title for himself. So over and over he refers to himself in the third person as the Son of Man. I had us read Matthew 26, where not only does he refer to himself as the Son of Man, did you notice specifically what he said. The high priest is trying to get him to say, who are you? Who are you? 
And he combines Psalm 110 with our passage, Daniel 7. He says, you have said it. You have said who I am. I am the son of the living God. You have said that. And from now on, you will see the son of man seated with power. And what else? That's Psalm 110. You will see the Son of Man seated with power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The ascension of Jesus Christ is his enthronement and receiving of the kingdom of Daniel 7 that he has received glory and honor and praise has already happened. He al- Jesus is the one with this authority. That's the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament. But notice what Jesus said there. The Son of Man, you will see the Son of Man coming. Now, if you're confused, that's okay. The New Testament sometimes uses this idea of the Son of Man coming as pure future. Sometimes it talks about it with the ascension specifically. And sometimes it seems to be talking about both. That's because of the kind of kingdom that the kingdom of God has come in Christ. And we're going to unpack that. But I want to make sure that the, the... the overwhelming point and reason why we can rejoice now is that Jesus already has this authority. Remember what he says in Matthew 28, the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me. He's claiming that he is the one that Daniel 7 talked about. So it's not that the kingdom of God has kind of come, sort of, but let me qualify it for a while. No, the the king of kings has been vindicated, has been enthroned. But let me prove it to you. A couple verses. I won't, there's, there's hundreds really we could go to. Let me go to a couple. Hebrews 10, talking about uh, his role as priest, but it gets at the same idea. Hebrews is, is chock full of showing that, guys, Jesus has ascended. He is the king. Don't go to anything else. Don't go anywhere else. So Hebrews 10 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sat down, meaning he has accomplished the work and he's done. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's Psalm 110. New Testament often uses Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 at the same time. Jesus did it. Hebrews 10 does it. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. Is that not reason to rejoice? Do you see what he said? The sacrifice has been done once and for all, and you have been perfected, even though you are being sanctified. His kingdom has come. Jesus' work was perfect, and we are being sanctified now. 
1 Corinthians 15 adds a, adds a very helpful uh, description. Paul is talking about the resurrection. Because hopefully you still have a lot of questions about this kingdom. Paul is explaining the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, meaning his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Now listen to this. For he must reign, talking about Christ, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. What does that mean? One, it means he is claiming Jesus reigns now. And he's using the Psalm 110 verse to say, he's reigning now, he is seated on his throne, and he's waiting for all of his enemies to be subdued. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quote, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. There he's actually quoting Psalm 8. See, I told you we could geek out. I mean, this is only like a few verses. Because he's he's, he's combining Psalm 110 with Daniel 7 and Psalm 8. Because Psalm 8 says the point of humanity was to have dominion over the earth. And humanity has failed. But Jesus has done the work of humanity, has put all things under his subjection, and now he is waiting for that to happen more and more. But the point of all of this is to realize that this vision of the one like the Son of Man is true of Christ, and he already reigns. He has the power. He has the kingdom. That's why we can pray, Lord Christ, may your kingdom come. How? On earth as it is in heaven. It already, he already reigns in heaven. That's not just like a general, yeah, God, we know you're somehow king in heaven, wherever that is. No, that's about this whole point of the real kingdom. The one kingdom that is everlasting. That is already true. It's already happening, the kingdom of heaven. And we want it to be manifest more and more now. We're not waiting for Jesus to be enthroned. We're not waiting for him to be declared as king. Even though he will be declared by, to, to everyone's view at the end. Then it will be totally on earth. So if we are really convinced, and this is what we see so much in the New Testament and the early church, they were really convinced that Jesus, by his resurrection and ascension, has been vindicated and has been enthroned with this everlasting kingdom. That's what can give us joy in the face of incredible suffering, victory in the face of of seemingly total defeat. That's what Athanasius, the uh, 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 ancient church father, says, look at these people who were once weak and hopeless and despaired and trembled in the face of death. But when they came to Christ, they mocked death. They would walk, it is as if they were walking by a tyrant that once oppressed them who is now imprisoned and they would mock him. That's the power 
that he says of the resurrection of Christ. If this kingdom really has come, this power should be among us. This is what we are offered in Christ. We get to join this victory parade. That's what everything from the ascension on can be described as, as a kind of victory parade of the kingdom of God. All right, but hopefully you still have a lot of real questions. We like questions in this church. I hope you're not afraid to ask them. Ask them after the service. We don't have sermon discussion today, but we can still talk. There should be a lot of questions. The questions I want us to really ask is that if all of this is true, why do we, why do I still serve so many other kingdoms? Why? All right? Because every kingdom, there are many kingdoms at war, right? Every kingdom demands obedience, it demands servitude. We don't always recognize it. We don't always recognize what kingdom we're serving, but we need to. I think the first one, maybe the most common, I'm not sure, is that we're just not convinced that, this, that the kingdom of God is winning. We're not really convinced that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Is he really on the throne? Have you read the news lately? Have you watched any cable news network? There seems to be a lot of sin and evil. Right? Well, there's obviously a lot we can say to that response, but I just want to get at the logic of it. The logic of that is that the presence of sin and evil is proof that Jesus doesn't reign. You see that? What I mean by that is, so one, the, the start of the book of Hebrews gives a kind of summary a summary of who Christ is. The start of the book of Hebrews says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Pretty wild stuff about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Pretty wild. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, from that point on, there was no sin in the world. Just as Jesus promised you would not experience evil. It just doesn't say that. Nowhere does Jesus say that. So that's what I mean by the logic of that. We are using the wrong scale to measure the presence of the kingdom of God. Because we were never told to use the scale of how much sin or how much evil is at work. If anything, Jesus said, Get ready, it's about to get real. Mother against son and brother against brother and all that's what he prepares his disciples for. 
That's the sort of scale that we should be using. So do you fall into that type of logic? It's, it's acting as if we're still waiting for the vindication of Christ. As if we're still waiting for judgment. And the thing that Paul seems to find his, his congregations and, and, and audience not understanding is that, guys, you are so used to thinking of Judgment Day as that thing in the future, as justification as that thing that you're going to receive at the end of time, but it has already come. Stop waiting. We have been justified. That phrase made no sense before Jesus. Because you could only be justified at the end when you die or when God comes and judges. But now, the heart of the Christianity is to say it's already come. We've been justified. We don't have to wait for the verdict anymore. That's the kind of logic we want to use when it comes to looking at sin and evil. Has the kingdom of God really come? The other, I think, uh, uh, main sort of struggle that we have is that we're just not quite sure if this kingdom of God is any better than the other kingdoms on offer. We get, we get so attracted or distracted by all these other good things it seemed to be just as good or better than what the kingdom of God is offering. Is that more of where your heart is at? You're just not quite sure that it's good. Okay, maybe it's come, but what I can get through my job or education or politics or whatever, that seems pretty good too. And I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket. Or I'm going to put half and half. Let me just hedge my bets. Let me get both kingdoms. And what I want us to think about with this uh, question is, you know what hospice care is, right? Hospice care is uh, a sort of end-of-life medical uh, treatment that has resolved, has come to realize that this person is, gonna, is, is simply going to die in a week, two weeks, a month. And... The, the concern with hospice care is now only symptom management. So you've just, the doctors, whatever, have realized that there's no curing this disease. And there's a lot of beautiful things about hospice care when it's done right. It can be such an important time and moment for the family, right? And, but I bring that up because I wonder, when it comes to the kingdom of God, we are engaged in spiritual hospice care all the time. And we don't realize it. The world, you could say, the kingdom of the world is stuck in this delusion and all they have is the tools of hospice care and they don't even know it. They're only going to deal with the symptoms. And they don't even know it. 
It's one thing, it's one, there are a lot of misuses of hospice care, right? You could come, I go to my doctor for an, an annual physical, and they're like, sorry, man, you got to get into hospice. What? You didn't tell me anything was wrong. That would be bad. But it's even more tragic if someone thinks they're curing the disease, and they're still only doing symptom management, right? How is this the case for us? Well, one thing I think to ask is uh, if we're engaged with hospice care and we don't even realize it, meaning what is it that we get most passionate about? What is it that we care the most about? Because if, if God is trying to make us into the image of Christ... If he's trying to shape our loves to be a love that is for the love of God and love of neighbor, we should be most passionate about what God is most passionate about. We should be most passionate about the kingdom of God, right? It's simply foolish if we are most passionate about things that don't matter. So, to be more wise, we should try to figure out what does it mean to be most passionate about the right things in the right proportion. One way to kind of test this is you can kind of test, test your loves and test your fears. If you think about it this way. Test your loves, meaning the thing that you care most about, what's the best case scenario here? Okay? Play it out. What's the best case scenario? If you were to get everything you ever wanted, if you are most passionate about politics and your, your political agenda fully passed in the next Congress, best case scenario. The kingdom of God has still not come, right? So this is all to say, why would you get the most passionate about a different kingdom? It's not to say that those things don't matter. I'm talking about the right proportion. We are to love the things that are most worthy of being loved, right? There was a, a I know a chaplain, a guy who was chaplain for the Patriots and the Red Sox like a decade ago, and he got asked by the press, how are you getting these, these like star athletes and studs to come to a Bible study? And his sense was, one of the reasons was that they realized they're, they're peaking at 23. And they're starting to be worried this can't be all that there is, right? Can't be that good. Best case scenario, hopefully, is something better than even just winning the World Series, right? But to test your fear, too, you kind of want to play out Worst case scenario, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of and what's worst case scenario? You lose your job? You have to sell your house? You have to downsize? What does that ultimately threaten? Is that worthy to be so afraid of? in comparison to the kingdom of God coming? 
in comparison to <laughs> the king of kings being obeyed more and more? That more and more people would come to surrender and love Jesus Christ? Are we fighting the wrong battle? Are we bringing a knife to a gunfight? And there's obviously a lot that we could qualify about the importance of, of vocation. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. But is it true that God just gets the leftovers? If we are so overwhelmingly focused on Caesar, do we realize what the mission of the church is? To subdue Christ's enemies? To proclaim the obedience of faith throughout the world? Do we realize the one who has authority on heaven and earth? And is this what consumes us? Ask yourself, if the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom of God has really come in Christ, if the New Testament is right, is that what consumes me? And if it doesn't, why? Why? What is the logic? What is, what is going on in your heart? I've... Uh, I've watched, I've been watching this show, uh, Madam Secretary. Has anybody watched it? It's pretty good. Yeah. It's good. It's good. So don't hear me critiquing. But it's good. I like it. She, so uh, this woman plays the Secretary of State in the U.S. Um, to me, it's like West Wing for the Secretary of State and not quite as sophisticated as West Wing. Not quite as good writing as the West Wing. Um, but there's a lot of like just interesting things going on, a lot of good, noble, idealistic, like, battles that are being fought. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting. And I saw, I saw an episode that really struck me recently, and it was the, the Secretary of State and their staff were just really in total despair because what they had witnessed was uh, uh, a terrible, terrible tragedy they were trying to prevent, and a number of, of innocent people were uh, killed. And they just, they like saw it in action. They saw it happen and it just struck a nerve with them. And so the staff is, is just kind of immobile, not able to do the work. And one of the staffers, as, as the secretary is trying to kind of motivate him, this is what struck me. He said, I want to slay dragons, not play whack-a-mole with evil. And I was like, ooh, that's all right. That's good. Keep talking. And the secretary comes back and says, sometimes making evil duck and find a new hole is the best we can do. Okay, not bad. But then that didn't really help the staff. And that was still a little depressing. Um, so, so another guy says, somebody gave me a poem after the terrorist attacks that he keeps in his wallet. So he pulls out of his wallet. And it's this poem that I just remembered. It got pretty famous, uh, at least on social media, the poem called Good Bones by Maggie Smith. Some of you may remember. Let me read the, the end of it. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I, am keep, though I keep this from my children. 
I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real dung hole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. And that was the the sort of end of the scene, and you cue the emotional music because now they're like ready for the mission. Okay, they can, they can still be acting and working towards making this place beautiful. And that's what pissed me off. Because that is so pathetic. If that's the best that the world has to motivate us towards good, if that's what we're living, we can make it a little bit better. We can play whack-a-mole, whatever. To a Christian, that should not even come close. Should not even come close to the passion of the kingdom of God. Is that what motivates you? You're going to make it a little bit better? No, you get to serve the king of kings who has been throned, who has been enthroned since the ascension. And you get to be a part of the new world in the church. This is a foretaste of the kingdom where we get to celebrate the love and joy and peace that no circumstance can defeat because he's already defeated sin and death. Have you joined that kingdom, that fight? Have you jumped into the battle? Have you jumped in with both feet? Are you hedging your bets? Are you just in with a couple toes in the water? To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the one that we worship that has dwelt among us and offers himself to us for life. That's the one that we get to feast on. Let's come to him and join that kingdom in that battle. Amen. Father, bring your kingdom. May the kingdom of God come more and more. We need it, we want it, and we want to want it. We want to want to want it more, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be active. Open our eyes and our hearts in how we are so distracted and attracted to other things and other kingdoms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory.